friends, good morning. Let's uh, flip over to Luke 23 this morning, huh? <clears throat> the plan for this morning is to read a section here of the crucifixion and the resurrection and kind of talk about the nuts and bolts of it. I think a lot of times uh, when I think back to when I received Christ, I was about 16 years old and uh, a bit of a hooligan at times. And if someone were to sit down and ask me at that moment or even for probably a couple of years after, what does it mean that Christ died for you? I probably couldn't say it. I probably couldn't articulate it or really even understand it. I received the simple message that Christ died for sin and he rose again from the dead uh, simply based upon my own personal experience of knowing uh, the depravity of my own heart and then believing uh, that there was something more to life. Uh, I, I realized that uh, I thought even as a young heathen, this idea that uh, amoeba got struck by lightning, or I should say lightning struck water and then an amoeba formed, and then that amoeba met another amoeba that had <laughs> two single-cell organisms that actually had DNA for a circulatory and a respiratory and you know, skeletal system, found each other in the ooze, and uh, without sexual organs, reproduced, and made a woodpecker. <laughs> and then that woodpecker, over billions of years, developed enough cushion in its frontal lobe to survive the G-forces that it creates when it's pecking wood. And then that created a monkey. Right? And even, even as a 16-year-old boy, and, and, and I, I did a lot of weird stuff. I would get on the lawn at, at night and just kind of look and be like, I know there's something more. There just has to be something more because this life is worthless. It's empty. There's no way that human beings could have continued for however many years we've been on the planet with, with nothingness, There's just with pointlessness. And so once I heard the gospel and received it, um, it wouldn't be years later till I, I think I, and I wouldn't say I understand it today, but at least had a grasp on, on what it means. And I think a lot of times we just say, well, Jesus died, he raised from the dead, and that's true. But why does it matter? Honestly, why does it matter? How does it impact me? Uh, the Persians actually invented crucifixion about 600 years before the Romans adopted it, and thousands of people have been crucified uh, in, the, in those time periods. So, so why is it this one person, as it were, why does that matter? And that's kind of what I want to talk about today. So that, Because honestly, in times of deep anxiety and concern and depression, when our faith is at its weakest, Knowing from the scripture why it matters is, I think, imperative for our personal faith and our, our walk with Jesus. And so my hope today is to kind of not just be academic, but to, to consider these things and look at these things for ourselves. So let's jump in. Uh, we're not going to, you know, there's a, I actually have, if anybody's interested, just talk to me afterwards. I have a, a paper that I got from, um, well, I, I didn't make it, it's a guy named Walvrud, but uh, it has an actual breakdown from every uh, chapter. It's a merger of the Gospels of, of how uh, the crucifixion and resurrection went. So every Gospel has some different details, right? Different sayings that D Jesus made, uh, the timelines and how those line up and stuff like that. So if you're interested, uh, I can give that to you afterwards. But for now, we're just going to read one account 
And there's a lot of stuff that we're not going to address because there's just a lot of really uh, amazing things that took place uh, in, this, in this time, in these hours. Uh, but we're just going to look at kind of the facts of it. So in uh, Luke chapter 23 and in verse 26, we'll start there. It says, The soldiers led him away. They seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. So real briefly... Jesus is on his way from the Praetorium. So if you're uh, familiar with the Gospels, uh, you'll, you'll know it is. If you're not, you won't know it is, and that's okay. So the Praetorium is uh, a place, it was kind of a barracks where the soldiers were. And uh, when, they, when the Roman government was trying to extract a uh, confession from someone, they would take them to the Praetorium. Now we know that they weren't trying to get a confession from Jesus because he'd already had an interaction with Pilate. He had said that he was, you know, Pilate asks him and says, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you say it. And then Pilate kind of, you know, talks to him to kind of have the philosophical debate about truth and whatnot. And then Jesus makes this statement, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. Right? So my kingdom's not of this world is, is the point he makes to, to Pilate. So he's not being scourged because they're trying to get a confession out of him. They're, he's being scourged because this is Pilate's kind of twisted way of trying to get Jesus off. Remember, Pilate's wife has a dream. She comes to him and she says, don't mess with this guy. This is not King James Version. He says, don't mess with this guy. I had a dream about him. He really messed me up in my dream. So not that he assaulted her, but she was troubled by it, right? And so she tells Pilate that. So Pilate, is, is, he's stuck because not, it's not biblical, but we know from Roman history that Pilate had really angered Caesar at this time. Pilate was known for being intentionally abusive to the Jews. He was known for being a magistrate that would on purpose agitate them. See, Rome as weird as they were and as a lot of the brokenness that was in their government, Rome ultimately believed in this idea that we want to bring the light of Rome to the world, democracy, senate, and all that. And so when they took a land over, it was brutal. We're not saying it wasn't. But their goal was assimilation. Their goal was one nation that where uh, you, know, you could travel from one side of the kingdom to the other. It was Romans that actually were the original nation that put guards on roads so that you could travel safely. So all that to say is, uh, the, the Pilate was in deep water already with Caesar. And Caesar had already sent him a message that says, if you cause another riot, I'm going to kill you. All right? So now Pilate is in this bizarre place because the, the people are screaming for the life of Jesus. Crucify him, crucify him. But he knows that, but he doesn't want to crucify him because his wife has alerted him to the fact that there's something different about him. And so he has Jesus scourged by that. And his goal is essentially to, to bring him to the praetorium, have him scourged so that when he brings him back out, the Jewish people will feel sorry for him and he won't have to crucify him. That's literally what Pilate's doing. He's trying to save his own skin. He does not want to cause a riot with the Jews, right? Because they had done that multiple times. Uh, and he's, he's not a good guy. He, he killed some of them and then mingled their blood with pig's blood and sacrificed it to some Roman gods. He did a ton of stuff to really anger them. So when we get to here, Jesus is uh, very much extenuated. He's shed a lot of blood. See, in the praetorium, they use a flagellum. I'm not trying to wow, I'm not trying to wow you with this. Like, we should really feel bad because Jesus got it bad. That's not the point. The point is this is what's happening. So in the praetorium, they, would, they had a stump or like a, a it, was more, it wasn't really a stump. It was like a, a rock um, 
small stump, if you will. I can't think of another word. Spherical item. And it had a, it had a, a ring in it. And so they would tie your hands to that ring, and then they would stretch it across, stretch you across to another just point, stake in the ground, and they would stretch you out. And Roman guards practiced with the flagellum. They were a specific, like you would have like the flagellum guy, and that was his job. So what Romans did is they scourged people they were trying, usually trying to get a confession from. And so when they practice the flagellum, it's a, it's a, you might have heard it's a, a cat of nine tails. So it's a, it's a whip. It's got a handle about this big, and then it's got whip. The whip is about that big, and there's nine strands of leather. And then embedded in that is uh, glass and bone, animal bone, uh, and, and small rocks. And so what they do is they purposely, not just like whip like you think like, you know, shoeing cattle on or something like that or a horse, they actually do it so it hits the body and then wraps around, and then they pull it, okay? And they did that in order to um, cause a lot of pain, cause damage, tissue damage that wouldn't bring death. Does that make sense? Although most people that were scourged in order to get a confession did die. Uh, they bled out for the most part. Uh, and so uh, it was normal to lose eyes. It was normal to lose whole facial features, if you've seen the Passion of the Christ when Jesus comes out from the Praetorium, that's actually a very generous look. Uh, most people lost the vast majority of skin on their back. Uh, they lost you know, skin around their rib cage and so forth. So when Jesus is walking down the road and they grab Simon of Cyrene, it's not just that the, the guards are feeling frisky and they're bored and they're like, ah, ha, 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 you carry this. It's because he can't. He can't carry the crossbar. He's bled too much. He's too weak. And so they, they grab this guard, there's a, I should say the guards grab this guy, Simon, and they say, you carry his crossbar. And it's not a full cross. Uh, we know that from history. It's, uh, it's a crossbar. Uh, typically, you know, a lot of times in our minds we have this idea that, that he's kind of like 30 feet in the air or something like that. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that actually points to there are there a couple of trees, and they had notched them. And so you carried your crossback, so you're probably more like two feet off the ground, maybe, because you... you uh, yeah, anyway, so there's a lot of interesting stuff about that. But I'll have to say, that's why he's carrying the crossbar, because Jesus is bleeding out, and he's weak. And so they grab this guy to carry it. Moving on from there, he says this, A large number of people, verse 27, followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the, uh, excuse me, the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. For if people uh, do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And we're really not going to spend a lot of time on that. There's a prophecy there and there's a lot to go around that. But just to point this one thing out, in the midst of this weakness, this um, Imminent death, all the things that are going through his mind as a, as a human being, as being one who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and also being God, which we know he didn't rely on, right? Philippians tells us that, that though he existed in the form of God, he didn't count it uh, a bad thing to uh, essentially to empty himself of that. He didn't rely on his deity. He relied on the, the Holy Spirit. But he sits back, or I should say, he looks back and he tells these women, you don't have to worry about me. You worry about yourselves. 
And he's making a simple point. He says, if they're willing to do this when the tree is green, otherwise, when I'm here and I'm healthy and there's ministry happening, if they're willing to do this now, what will it be like when it's dry? What will it be like when his effect on the earth starts to wane? What, what will happen then? So he's, just, he's giving a prophecy and he says, don't worry about me. But that heart, he says, don't worry about me. Worry about yourselves right now. And, and, and we'll come back to that heart because that's incredible. It's, it's a supernatural heart. It's a heart from perfect love, right? When you perfectly love someone else, that's when you say something like that. When you don't perfectly love other people, or I don't perfectly love other people, what we say is, hey, worry about me. Wait, get me out of here. Why are you guys following me around? Attack the guards. Get me out of here, right? He'd already told Pilate it wasn't going to go that way, but he's, he's, he's concerned about others. Verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there. This, you know, it, it just kills me every time. It's so profound. It's one phrase. Think about that. One phrase. They crucified him there. Like, man, it's done. That's just, I don't know why. I'm not trying to make a mountain out of a molehill, but it seems like there should be more text than that to me. Like, more description than that. But it's just, it's just that simple. They got him to Golgotha. They got him to the place of the skull. And they crucified him. It was business as usual, as thousands of before, to the Romans, as thousands before had uh, been also crucified. But he's crucified next to two criminals, and one on his right and one on the, the other on his left, in verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And he divided up his clothes, excuse me, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. There again, as they tie the crossbar to him, they, they, they had to tie the arms. You, 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 the, the nails were in, but you, without tying the arms, most people would fall off uh, the cross. So they crucify him, they lift him up, and as they're doing that, his confession, his heart's desire, his speech is, forgive these Roman soldiers. Forgive these guys. They don't know what they're doing. They don't fully comprehend what's happening right now. They drilled nails into his hand. They drilled nails into his feet. They put the crown of thorns on him. They put a robe on him and made fun of him for being the king of the Jews or claiming that. They beat him with a stick. They used the flagellum, all these things. But his heart is for them. His heart is that they would be forgiven. Now, we're not trying to belabor a point here, but it's important to understand that the, the biblical context of God is that he cares about you. That, that, that everything we read and everything we consider, even though we live in a crazy broken world and we do terrible broken things to other people and other people do terrible broken things to us, that even in all this chaos and all my thoughts and emotions and difficulty and all these things, to realize that this is the heart of God. The heart of God is not to bring people into religion. It's not to try to clean people up from the outside in. It's not to, you know, all the things that, that can religious or religious practices can bring into ideas, that that's not his heart. His heart is, God, I want you to forgive these guys. It doesn't even seem logical to me, because when you go, God, these guys are doing something bad. They deserve justice. Why isn't his cry justice? Why doesn't he say, Father, justify me in front of these guys and destroy them right now? Why doesn't he say, you know, there's a million things he could have said that maybe I would have said. I would have cried out. What's going on here? But instead, his attitude is, I came for these people, the people that are wounding me the most, my disciples who just ran away from me about 16 hours ago, who all left me to the Romans, the Roman guards, 
Even the religious leaders that he has this heart, we're saying, my heart is for those people. It's a perfect love. It's hard for us, I think, to process because we don't have that, do we? We want that. We desire it. We pray for it. We seek the Spirit to give it to us. But perfect love is so far out of our experience that when we read about it, we go, wow, okay, okay. I guess, I, I mean, I want it to be true. I need it to be true. But the reality is, it is true. And the foundation of the gospel is this, that God loves and cares for human beings when they treat him the worst. And we can never deviate from that interpretation because when we do, we come up with all sorts of weird ideas about what it takes to be saved or continue to be saved or whatever it is. When it's the fact that God just loves human beings and he wants to be with them, that he fashioned them after his own image and gave us a depth of mind and spirit and soul that we could commune with him and be interesting to him. I mean, I mean isn't that what you saw in the garden? Adam and Eve cruising around naked, talking to God and doing botany. That's the entire gardening experience that we read about. That they would walk with him in the cool of the day. Just go strolling along. Hey, God. How's it going? We don't read about them groveling before him. We don't read when he says, Adam, where are you? That Adam like crawls out on his belly and goes, oh, God. He just says, I'm over here hiding because we sinned and stuff. And we realized we were naked. And God says, well, who told you you were naked? Right? So he just, he just, just dialogue. No accusation. No, you don't get this thing where it's like all of a sudden the, you know, the giant arms of heaven went on hips and we're like, mm-hmm, <laughs> tell me about this, right? So this is our context for the gospel. This is our context for the cross. And this is our context for the resurrection, that Jesus Christ looked upon human beings with care and with compassion and humility, even though he shouldn't have, if you will. He goes on from there and it says this, uh, it says they divided up his clothes by lots, by casting lots, so he had a really nice or a pretty decent uh, robe, so they were essentially rolling bones to see who got it. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him and offered him wine, vinegar, and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung, uh, who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Stop there for a second. Now we know from the other gospels, for example, Matthew, that both criminals started off hurling insults at him, right? That it wasn't just one of them, that both of them were mocking him. And I think that this demonstrates the radical depravity of us, not them, of us. So crucifixion is a little bit interesting, not to be morbid, because if you read the Psalms, like Psalm 22, you kind of get this medical version, and it's, it's confirmed by research and doctors, you get medical version of what happens in crucifixion. See, the crossbar on the bottom, you know, the little step, you see that in pictures, right? The, 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 the feet are nailed, but then you see that little, that little like, piece of wood under their feet. It's actually a, a kind of a cruel joke because to breathe over time, you have to push up on your feet because what happens is, 
You know, in, in chat, for example, in Psalm 22, he says, "All my, all my uh, bones are out of joint, and my heart is melted, is melted like wax within me." So, a crucified person who is allowed to continue, what happens is their shoulders and their elbows and their wrists eventually pull out of joint, and their arms elongate. So their arms get uh, anywhere between like 8 to 12 inches longer. And so what happens is they begin to lean forward really far over. And, and as that begins to happen, if you've ever seen a skeleton, you have a sternum, right? Right here. And so the, the major ribs, the large ribs, those connect to the sternum by cartilage, right? So if you've ever done CPR right, you feel it rip off the ribs. So what happens is as your arms stretch and you're out of time, your ribs pull apart. And so the sternum pulls apart from one side of your ribs. And, and, and you, you, you drift farther and farther and farther. So you have to use your feet to push up to be able to get your diaphragm involved so that you can speak. Does that make sense? So when these guys are speaking and making fun of Jesus, they are using literally all of their strength, enduring mass amount of pain, and uh, you know, exhausting themselves in order to make fun of this guy that's between them. Right? That's pretty wild, isn't it? That that's what we'll do as humans? That that's how demonic we can get? That's how, that from our very own soul, we can sit next to someone else who's crucified and then make fun of him to do that? So that's what's going on here. They're, just, they're making fun of him. Eventually, it, when, for example, it says, my heart welted, melted like wax. So in your, for Jesus, not for these guys, they're going to get their legs broken to cause them to suffocate. But for Jesus, well, around your heart, you have what's called a pericardium. And the pericardium is a sac. It's just literally all it is, right? And then in that sac is a lubricant, right? And your heart sits in there. And what that does is it allows it so is the faster your heart beats, you don't generate too much heat around your heart, and it doesn't cause damage to the heart muscle, right? So in a crucifixion, because you begin to have so much stretching, the pericardium actually rips, and it tears open. And what happens is that from the tearing of the, the different tissue inside and the, the elongating of the arms, brachial arteries, different things like that, the cavity begins to fill, fill with blood. And so you begin to have uh, cardiac tamponade, which is where your heart, as it contracts, blood comes in and it can't, it can't expand as much. And so you literally begin to feel like uh, you're having a heart attack, but for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And then eventually, depending if it's thirst or, you know, there's different things, or the heart actually tears, that's how you die. So when Jesus, when it says that his heart melted within him like wax, it's a, it's a prophetic and a metaphoric way of saying that that's how he died, from his heart finally ripping. So these guys are doing that. And, and, and yet, what we're going to read now is incredible. It says there, but the other, verse 40, criminal rebuked him. Do you not fear God, he says, since we are under the same sentence? So this guy begins to tell the other one, hey, be quiet. What are you doing? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our needs deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Again, a whole nother awesome teaching about the symbolic uh, uh, gesture of a reality of an absolute open holy of holies that anyone has access to the presence of God now. 
But he says, For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. And the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went their way. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So we have all these things that goes down, and then he, he finally dies. So what does that mean for us? Because you kind of have this emotional, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but you have this emotional assent to the terribleness of this. We may even have an intellectual assent to, to consider how bad this was against a person and how incredible it is that one sent by God could love humans this much in that kind of a condition, in that kind of adversity, in that kind of violence against them. But then what does it actually do? Right? Beyond some sort of emotional plea to my heart or make me buy cross jewelry or something, what does it actually do for me? And this is where the rubber reaches the road. This is where the gospel becomes incredible news. You don't have to turn there for time's sake. I'm going to just read the verse, but if you want to jot it down, it's Romans 3.25 says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So our first idea is that God presented Christ. He, not just Christ didn't just arbitrarily arrive here. That it was a plan. Now we know that, right? But it was a plan. It had been planned out and that the Father actually brought Jesus as his son and presented him to the earth. Think about that. That it was, it was a, uh, here he is. It was a voluntary giving. And he wanted the whole earth to see him. He presented him. But to do what? A sacrifice of atonement. So atonement, the word atonement means this. It's a place, it's, it's, it's a noun. It's a mercy seat or a place of propitiation. Propitiation is kind of a fancy Christian world, word. And it just means that it's the exact right payment. His payment was complete and right. That's, that's what propitiation means. And so when, he, when, when, when Paul here, writing to the Romans, says this, he's demonstrating that Christ's sacrifice was a perfect payment through his blood to be received by faith. Right? So in the Old Testament, the mercy seat was the top of the ark. Anybody here uh, ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah. You remember that big gold thing on the top that had like the two wings? It's actually a really good representation of what the top of the ark could have looked like. And so what happened is, once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, they would slay a red heifer, and they would fill a basin with its blood, and then the, the high priest would put on some garb. He would put a uh, chest piece on that had uh, gems in it that looked like the, each gem represented one of the tribes of Israel. And he would go into the Holy of Holies, and, and um, he couldn't have any sweat. He couldn't be sweating in the desert, in a 15 by 15 box, uh, he just there was a lot of rules about how the priest went in there, and so um, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but biblical history tells us it, that in tradition that they would actually tie a rope around his leg because no one was allowed in the Holy of Holies, and if they heard a thud, they would pull him back out because they didn't dare open the curtain, right? Which has to do with what we read about that curtain splitting. But anyway, 
So what would happen is he would sprinkle this blood on top of that golden lid called the mercy seat. And the promise that God gave in the law is that when you do this, I will meet with you above the mercy seat and I will forgive the sins of the nation of Israel. So it's kind of this once a year uh, acknowledgement that there was a need for the shedding of blood. Does that make sense? And so you think about this incredible looking gold piece that would just be crusty and stinky with dried bovine blood. That's what the mercy seat was. And so when Paul relates back to that in Romans, he says that God presented Christ as a sacrifice through the shedding of his own blood, right? The sacrifice atonement was through Christ's blood. Now we know from the book of Hebrews that all the blood and bulls, the blood of bulls and goats, it never forgave sin. And if you go back and read the Old Testament, it always relates to the idea of blood covering sin. And the word there is blotted or smeared. The idea is that the blood of bulls and goats was smeared over sin. But it wasn't until Christ would come and shed his perfect blood that sin would be actually forgiven and dealt with. So we look back to the cross for forgiveness. The Old Testament and the Israelis, they looked forward to the coming Messiah, didn't necessarily understand the cross for their forgiveness. Does that make sense? So the first thing, it was his blood alone is the atonement. We know in John chapter 2, and I want to encourage you today, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'd encourage you. 1 John chapter 2 tells us, well, let's read it. We'll turn to this one. It's in black and white. It seems kind of important. A lot of times, I think when we're wrestling with our faith or, or to believe in Christ or who Christ is, a lot of times we can think, is it really for me? Do I, do I really get this? He says here, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Verse 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we already covered atoning sacrifice. Who's our? He says, my dear children, it's believers, right? It's us. But then check it out. It doesn't stop there. And not only for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. The whole world. The Greek word there is cosmos. Does that sound familiar? Where we get, it's, it's the entire created universe. See, the blood of Christ is for every single person on the planet. Every person has a legitimate option to receive Jesus. And no one is excluded. And if you want to receive Christ today... The blood's for you. The promise is for you. The atonement is for you. And there's nothing that can prevent you from it if you want it. And all you need to do is cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 9, it says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? The word justified there means to be declared righteous. So we're not just acquitted by the blood of Christ. It's not just that the blood says, okay, well, you're not guilty anymore. It's not just a lack of a negative. Does that make sense? It's actually a positive. Through the blood of Christ, you are right with God, 110%. It's not through having all the right doctrine. He doesn't say that. It's not through understanding everything in the Bible and having a perfect defense for the age of the earth. It doesn't say that. Right? It's, it's, it's by the blood of Christ. We've been made righteous, right with God by the blood of Christ. 
Not by baptism, not by speaking in tongues, not by being good boys and girls or bad boys and girls. It's because he shed his blood, we are right with God. That and that alone. And which one of us would be so proud and so, so pompous to say, well, I also tithe, so, or I also help my neighbor, or I also... It's ridiculous to try to claim anything, say, well, you know, I have an incredible church attendance record, so that's probably why I'm still saved. No. The Bible never says that. Never once does it say, as long as you're a 90 percenter, you're in. As long as you're at 51 percent, ooh, you're, it's rough, but you're, no. Because Christ shed his blood. You're right with God. This is where security comes from. This is where confidence comes from. He goes on in, in, in Hebrews chapter 13. It says, so also, excuse me, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate. This is a reference to a certain sacrifice. To make the people holy through his own blood. A different word. Holy. It means to be sanctified. What does sanctification mean? You know, for those of us that didn't grow up in like a churchianity, we don't know what that means. So being, you know, if, if you were to ask me as a young Christian what is holy, I'd be like, I don't know. I think it's like those pictures of Jesus where he's like slightly blurry and he has like a lamb on his shoulders. and he... That's not it. It literally just means it's the process of being set aside. So I, I use this example all the time because it's the best one. I used to have a mug. And this mug was, I don't even remember who gave it to me, but years ago, probably 25 years ago, somebody gave me this mug and it was like hand spun. And so it was kind of wobbly and weird looking. At first I was like, ah, cool, thanks. But the uh, inside of it, I discovered one day that there was a line. And by just trial and error, I realized if I, filled, if I put the cream in first and then did the coffee, it was like the godsend mixture. <laughs> you know you coffee drinkers, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, you enjoy your coffee every morning, but there's those mornings where you're like, what is this? How is it so good, right? And so I started to experience that every day, which you might think I'm lying, but I'm not. It was like, I've never thought Nirvana was real until I had the cup. I'm just kidding. But, you know, so, but that was this, this cup, right? And every once in a while... Because my wife is awesome. We'd have people over for dinner, and she would hand that cup to people, and I'd be like, what's happening right now? <laughs> Give them our children, but not the cup. You know, it's like, you know, it was sanctified to me. It was holy to me. It was set aside for me. It was my cup, and no one ought to touch it, you know? That's what holiness is. It's, that's what sanctifying is, is when you have been set aside for a special person, purpose. And it's used to describe like the utensils that the priests use in the Old Testament for the sacrifices and so forth. And now it's used in the New Testament for us. That we're set aside for God, for relationship and co-laboring for his kingdom. But how are we sanctified? By his blood. You're set aside for God, not because you did good this week. It helped you if you were, if you did kind of steer clear of sinful issues in your life this week. If you made that decision to walk in the power that he has for you, then it aided you in being a power for his kingdom, right? But you weren't set aside because of him. You were set aside already because of the blood of Christ. 
you just made a decision or I just made a decision to either be part of that or not be part of that. It gets, and you might think, oh, I think you're stretching it. Ooh, but we're not. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he says here, this, this, this word brought near is, is uh, not to get too academic here, but it's in the heiress active indicative, which we don't have in English. So the word that, that where it says we're being brought near, it's eros, which means this. It means that it is something that occurred because it's tied with indicative. It's an event, a singular event, as a snapshot that occurred in the past, and there's no process linked to it. So when he says that you were brought near, it wasn't a process that occurred over time. It's something that happened in, through his blood instantaneously when you trusted in Christ. When it says that it's active, it's the idea of R-I-N-G. So even though it's an, event, it's an event that occurred in the past through the blood of Christ that we've received full benefit from when we trusted in him, it's still going on today. Meaning this, every moment of every day, you are brought near. He's not even bringing you near. You can't get closer to him than you are. He already brought you near and is keeping you near every moment. And the indicative is that there's no, there's, it's not going to end. It's a real condition that God has already accomplished. But how did that condition get accomplished? By his blood. Not by our behavior. Not because we spoke in tongues or had a Holy Spirit moment. Not because we did anything. By his blood. See, this is the crazy thing about Christianity. When we sin, it's not that we're losing salvation. It's that we're choosing to sin against love, against relationship, against care, against these things. It's not that we have to make ourselves near. We, we preach it that way sometimes to people like, well, maybe if you weren't so dang naughty, you'd be closer to God. <laughs> All of us are as close to God as we're ever going to be. The question is, will we be part of that? Will we embrace that? Will we acknowledge that? You know, I posted this thing on my Facebook this morning. and it, Not that that's a boast. That's, that's not weird, but... But I, I found this, it's just fascinating. It's a picture of a protein dragging an endorphin to essentially to the, the center of your brain that causes happiness. See, that, we don't think about this a lot. But do you, when you feel happy, do you know why you feel happy? And we go, because the joy of the Lord is my strength. No. <laughs> you feel happy because a piece of your brain recognized that you're looking at something that in the past has been good. And then it tells a separate section of your brain, please puke out things like oxytocin, uh, uh, endorphins, right, dopamine. And so part of your brain says, I like this, so I want to feel happy now. So another part of your brain goes, okay. <laughs> and it reaches that other, the other portion of your brain, and you go, I feel happy now. That's why we have to walk by faith. Because sometimes the old endorphin proteins seem to take a break, right? <laughs> Nothing makes us happy. Nothing makes us feel excited. Nothing, oxytocin is literally the, the release from your brain that makes you feel close to another human being. That's why you feel that. We think, oh, this is just Holy Spirit power. No, it's not. It's physics. It's physiology. Now, is the Holy Spirit working? And Yes, because our joy is based on truth. Not on little proteins walking things to our different parts of our brain. 
So when we look at these things, we're brought near, right? We're atoned, all these things. It doesn't matter how close we feel to God. It doesn't matter if a protein made it to the right place to make us feel close to God. We are close to God since the day we received him. We've always been close to God, and we've never been far away from him. He holds on to us. We don't hold on to him. Let's be real about that. Which one of us could raise our hand and say, I've held on to God my whole life, and it's just a darn good thing I'm so strong. (laughs) Right? That would be ridiculous to think that way. We've always been near to God since we were reconciled through his blood. But we get to decide how much of that will actually appropriate in our lives. The crazy thing about us is we're just like these thieves, is we'll have something occur in our life, and then we blame God, and we say, this is your fault, and then we're so baffled by why he's not close to us anymore. When the reality is he's been there the whole time, and we've just been rejecting him. We've been so proud, we won't say, I don't know why this happened, but I know that you'll do something in my heart to either be able to tolerate it, to learn from it, to grow from it, to be able to comfort others from it, we don't go there. Instead, we go, this should have never happened. You did it wrong. And it's the crazy thing about us. So we go on from there. Lastly, in Revelation 1 and verse 5, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We have never gained the victory over sin in ourselves. It says there, he un- the word free means to untie, to unbound. That our sin was wrapped around us and he untied it for us. It's just incredible. So why does the blood of Christ matter? Because it alone is our security and the foundation of why we have any claim to John 1 to be called, since we have the right to be called the children of God. His blood purchased us a right. Isn't that wild? The the, the Bible says you have a, a right to be called his child before him. Not that we get to be pompous and rude. But to say, no, no, to, to anyone, no, no, I have the right to be a child of God. I have a 100% right to call God my Father. And in Hebrews, it's expanded on, and he says that we can come boldly into his throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in a time of need. So we typically only need grace and mercy when we messed up, right? When we sinned, we rebelled. That's when you need Grace. And so you and I have this incredible opening to the Father to receive grace and mercy. It doesn't say we can come in boldly and get judged and condemned. That's what human beings do. That's what we do. We have a boldness to enter his throne based on his own blood. It's what gives us, you know, it's why you can sing. It's why we can worship. It's why we can walk into the building. It's why we can talk to one another. It's why we can pray. It's all those things. We have to get rid of this idea that somehow we get to do those things because we've been good boys and girls. We get to do those things because God loves us so much that he shed the blood of his son. So back here in Luke chapter uh, 23, we'll keep reading in verse 50. It says, now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council. So he's a Sanhedrin member. A good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and then he took it down and wrapped it in, in linen cloth and placed in it a tomb cast, uh, excuse me, cut in the rock. 
one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. And the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they uh, rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the tomb rolled away uh, from the, excuse me, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners to be crucified and on the third day to be raised again. So you have this resurrection moment. And I, I want to point out here, notice that they didn't understand it. This is also, I think, important. They didn't, the, the angels have to remind them. And they say, why are you looking? Remember, he told you. Over and over again through the Gospels, Jesus told the fellas and his followers he said, I'm going to die, right? And I'll be raised from the dead. And every single time, what was their response? No, bro. That's not what's going to happen. Whether it was Peter saying, I'll defend you to the death, whether it was the fact that they just couldn't even fathom in, in Matthew 17 as they're coming down the Mount of Transfiguration, he tells them, I'll be raised from the dead. And it says this, they didn't understand what the resurrection from the dead was. So these are the big 12, Right? These are the guys, these are the fellows, these are the, the thinkers of Jesus. And they're like, we don't even know what you're saying right now. What is this resurrection thing you're talking about? Right? And so his followers didn't understand it. The thief on the cross, perfect example. When he professes his faith, he doesn't say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and that your blood will be the propitiation for my sin. And that you will rise from the dead in about three days from now. And that will be what my hope is in. All he says is, when you go to your kingdom, will you remember me? Right? That's so simple. You know, Abraham, he didn't say, God, I believe that from my loins will come a savior and his name will be Jesus. He literally, God said, I'm going to bless you, the whole world through you. And he says, okay. And God says, you're right with me because you said, okay. You said, I'll let you bless me. So now you and I are righteous. Even though you're going to sell Sarah out twice, right, to a harem, even though you're going to have this love child that destroys your family dynamic for 16 years and makes a weird triangle between Hagar and your wife, even though you're going to become so attached to Ishmael that when God comes to him and says, Isaac's going to be the inheritor, and Abraham says no. He says, no, let Ishmael live before you. I mean, this is not a giant of the faith, and yet he's the father of the faithful. A broken person that was used by God, didn't always have the right doctrine, didn't make the right decisions, but just kept saying, okay, God, when God came back to him, the thief on the cross, all he acknowledges, uh, you're going to heaven, and I'd like to be with you. 
Will you please remember me? He doesn't even have some sort of doctrinal statement. You could redeem me from the throne of your father and make intercession for me. He's just like, eh, could you think about me? Will you get there? And Jesus' response is, you'll be with me in paradise. You know, there's a reason why he says the smoking flax, he doesn't stomp out. Because he loves us. He's not interested in trying to snuff us out. He's interested in drawing us to himself to experience life on a daily basis. At the end of the day, we just get to decide that. The problem is that we constantly make that decision when we're rejecting him. It's like we think to ourselves, if I remove everything of Jesus from my life, then I can actually make a real decision about Jesus. That's a joke, and that's not valid in any other part of our life, is it? If you're planning to move somewhere, you don't go, you know what, I'm just going to sell everything I have and just show up there and see what happens. Or or when you're looking at a job, you don't say to yourself, you know what, I'm not going to do any thought about it. I'm just going to be there, and then I'll, I'll just be able to make the right decision. How can we constantly live outside, not not away from him, but outside from his influence, rejecting that influence in our lives, and then think to ourselves that will, one, have any kind of joy, because if you don't have Christ, you have death, and that's it. That's what you have. And if you have a false religion, you have a hope of 70 virgins by blowing yourself up in some sort of jihad. Or you have a hope of achieving some sort of nirvana because you can discipline yourself enough. You can fast long enough. You can uh, abstain from the flesh, things of the flesh long enough. That's what everything, it's all death. And, and, And yeah, Christ is so good. He's so kind. He has so much to offer. Do not make your decision about Jesus in rebellion. Do not make your decision about Jesus when you're not listening to him. Go to him. Ask him. Pray to him. Invest in seeing him. Then make your decision. Because he promises that anyone who seeks him will find him. Anyone. He said, whosoever will may come. Any person who seeks the Lord, he has bound himself by his own word to reveal himself to that person. And so you cannot go wrong by simply taking a step of faith to ask for that revelation. But we'll move on there. So they didn't understand. The thief on the cross didn't understand. They don't understand all that's going on. But he raised from the dead. So why does the resurrection matter to us? How does that affect us? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says this. He says, He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And the word therefore raised us up is it's, uh, uh, synergiro, which is probably pretty poor Greek. But it might sound familiar. We got our word synergy. Right, so a synergy is when two things work together to make something better, right? That's what a synergy is. And so the, the Greek word that's being used here is the idea that we are synergized with Jesus in his resurrection, okay? In other words, we are literally resurrected with him to live a resurrected life. And we'll talk about what resurrected life is because it's not just pie in the sky. Colossians 2 says, Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power, excuse me, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Here's a very similar idea. So we were buried with him in baptism. That is not water baptism. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I'll be glad to talk to anyone afterwards. It's, the word baptism is just a word, and it means to be immersed, right? So we can go to Ephesians chapter 2 where it says there were no works that caused us to be saved, right? We were saved by grace. We weren't saved by faith. 
We were saved by grace through faith. It's a big difference. If you try to say you're saved by your faith, then I hope you have enough faith to be saved. We were saved by grace. His loving favor towards us when we exhibited a tiny little bit of faith and said, yeah, you know what? I do want to be near the God of the universe that created me, and I do want forgiveness. That tiny little bit of faith, maybe even motivated a little bit selfishly, allowed an open door for the incredible rushing grace of God that saved us. Okay? So it wasn't baptism that saved us. He's not, this is not a verse to promote baptism. It's the idea that when we received Christ, that we were immersed into him. We identified with him symbolically, and we were buried with him. The old nature, the old me, the one that, that has the rage issue, the, the lust issue, the whatever issue you struggle with. And I want to make a side note here. We struggle with things from our hearts. There's no big bad devil making anybody do anything. We decide. We decide. Is Satan good at helping us along? Sure, absolutely. But as soon as we try to say, that thought would never come from me, we deceive ourselves. Jesus told us that when our mouth speaks, it comes from the abundance of whose heart? Ours. It doesn't say from the abundance of Satan, the mouth speaks. He said from our own hearts. So that's something we have to come to grips with. We are the wicked ones. We are the ones that have the sin issue that's dragging us to hell, not someone else. And so by his blood, that's been forgiven. But now that nature inside of us has been, was buried. It's died with Christ. And he says, in which you were also raised with him through the faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So by faith, we die with Christ and now we live a life, the life that Christ lives. He goes from there in Romans chapter 4 and it says, He was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. His resurrection dictated to us that we are now justified. It's the same idea as being pronounced righteous with God through his resurrection. So why is the resurrection important? Because that's where we receive our life. Excuse me, living in the new man created in Christ Jesus, we're told in other places. That Christ created this new life that was victorious over death because of his righteousness and because of his blood and through faith, we get to experience the life that he lived. Meaning we have power now to say no to ourselves. Before we could only do what we wanted. Even self-restraint was why? Because it benefited us. Our whole motivation before Christ was always selfish. You might think, I want to murder that person, but you don't. Why? Because prison sucks. Right? I've never been there, but I've seen shows. So, you know, none of us want to go there. We did things because we, for self, selfish purposes. There is no purpose that is not selfish in us, if that makes sense. It was only once Christ rose from the dead and now is able to impart new life to us through his resurrection, and now we have the Holy Spirit in us, that we don't live by law, obeying laws in the, the, the Old Testament anymore. We live by being led by the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. Amen. Right? So these are, these are important things that have occurred through. It's all because of the, the resurrection. In Romans chapter 8, it says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is not a healing verse. 
This is a verse that points out, if you go back and read chapter 8, it points out the fact that we no longer have to be dominated by our own self-will anymore. We don't have to give in to addictions. I'm not saying it's easy. We have power through the Spirit to say no to the old nature, no to the things that we know destroy us, no to all those things, right? So he gives life through his Spirit by, because of the resurrection or through the resurrection so that you and I can live miraculous lives. Not lives where bad things don't happen. That does, that's not real. But lives where no matter what happens, he will see me through. That's the power that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Power to not suffer is chump, weak power, and it's false. Power to suffer with joy and peace and comfort is real power, right? One is based on fear. I hope I never have to suffer. One is, no matter what happens to me, God will be faithful, right? And then lastly, Romans chapter 6, and we'll, I'll turn there, and you're welcome to the power of the resurrection, So in, in actually in Romans chapter 5, it says this. It says, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is the summary of a couple of thoughts, and we don't have time to get into all of them. Romans chapter 4 is the basic fact that, that faith is not a work. That's what Romans chapter 4 has to say, that faith, exercising faith, is not a work. And Paul makes the point that if you try to say that faith is a work, then you make God a debtor. In other words, if I generate, if, if my faith is somehow something of accomplishment, then what that means is God owes me salvation because I generated faith. And that's not true. We had faith because we saw the Lord, we were willing to say, okay, I want that. And that was our faith. It was tiny, it wasn't impressive, and we made a prayer, all right? So the point is this. The law came in, the law came in to expose sin. The law, in other places, it tells us too, in Romans, the law could never make a person righteous. It could not do it. All the law can ever do is show you that you're not righteous, so if, if, for there's a large sect of Christianity that try to obey the Sabbath or they try to uh, obey the, the, the dietary laws and they kind of pick and choose. And I'm not picking on my brethren. I'm, not, they, I'm sure they love Jesus and that's why they do that. It's not for me to say. But that's not biblical because the law was fulfilled in Christ. And so we don't do things in the law to try to become more Jewish to try to impress God. We just went through a myriad of verses. How did our sanctification, our atonement, our nearness, how was that all accomplished? Not through the law, through the blood. And now that, I, now that he's risen from the dead, now I have power in my life through his resurrection. So what's being said here is that the law came in to demonstrate. Abraham had no law, right? Isaac had no law. Jacob had no law. None of those guys walked under the law. No written law at all. What they walked by was just a conviction of whatever. I don't know. But what happens is Moses comes in and brings the law, and it's there for one reason, to show everyone just how sin sinful they are. Now, also, that governed a theocratic nation, right? A, a nation led by God. But the law was never designed 
to be something to make a person righteous. Romans uh, uh, 3 tells us the law cannot make a person righteous. In 1 Corinthians 3, it says the law is weak and passing away. It's kind of interesting stuff that the New Testament has to, to say. So then the question becomes, what happened? Well, as much as sin increased, grace increased. And I'll tell you, the closet legalists in here, we hate that. Wait a minute. Sin increased and then grace increased? Shouldn't it be sin increased and condemnation increased? That's how we live our life. Oh, I see your sin is increasing. Okay. You know, that's what you want to do. Right? But I'm not judging you on the outside. <laughs> right? But where sin increased, the more sin that, got, that, that, that was produced, the more sin that, that was revealed, God's grace just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. No limit. So then Paul asks a question in chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. Right? We are those who have died to sin. Now, this is a rhetorical question. Paul is not saying to himself, huh, I wonder how we could possibly go on living in sin. We go on every day living in sin. How many of us have had an experience where you've been walking with the Lord for 1, 2, 3, 20, 40 years, and God reveals, like, you have this really weird pride right there, and you've had it for 40 years, and you get all embarrassed, and you're like, oh, my goodness, I've said those things to people, and they still hung out with me? Like, this is incredible. If you take a doctrine that says that you have to repent of every sin and keep a short account, you're going to hell because we can't keep a short enough account. Our righteousness is through his blood. It's not through confession. I'll be glad to talk about 1 John if we confess of our sins because the whole point of 1 John is fellowship. But, but to, to, to try to say that there's anything, uh, save, save Christ. So the question has to be asked, should we continue? He says, no, you don't continue. But why? Is it because we're in danger of hell? Absolutely not. You know why you don't continue? He's going to go on there, and in the end, he's going to say, because when you serve sin, you become a slave to it, and you reap the fruit from it. If I go out my whole life, and I'm just a jerk to everyone, right, all the time, I'm not going to lose my salvation, but I'm not going to be even remotely useful for the kingdom, am I? Because if I'm rude to everybody at work, and I'm just like, oh, you shouldn't talk like that, you shouldn't be like that, you shouldn't smoke like that. And I just continually ride people about their sin. And then I go, hey, do you want to meet Jesus and go to my church? <laughs> Are they going to be like, yeah, that sounds like a good time. It sounds like you really live an incredible life. Continually telling everybody around you what they shouldn't do. That sounds great. I would love to meet more people like you all located in one place. <laughs> right? So it's going to have a tremendous fruit. I'll probably end up divorced. My children will probably not want to be with me. Right? So I don't, I don't become not a child of God before. The blood doesn't lose its potency, right? I just destroy what God wanted to build in my life and around me. And then I'll have an account for that. But the account is not so that I can lose my salvation. The account is going to be, what, are you, what did you do? Why did you do that? And the things that I formed in my life, it says in 1 Corinthians 3, they'll be burnt away. The parts of my soul that, that became rude and crotchety and bitter, it can't go into heaven. So it says that that will be burnt away, but he himself shall be saved as by fire. So we get to go to heaven essentially like, woo, we're here. Made it. I don't think anybody's going to be bummed out. 
but will have no previous real experience. There'll be no reward. And you might say, wow, I don't care about reward. I'm incredibly spiritual. I just care about Jesus. That's cool, except that Jesus says you really want this. So are we going to be so pompous to be like, well, Jesus is probably wrong, and I probably don't want it. So I'll live like hell and see what happens. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Jesus says you really want to live this way. He says true life is when you give your life to me. All of it, the whole thing. It's when you humble yourself in front of people that aren't humble. It's when you choose to love someone that doesn't love you. It's when you let the power of the Holy Spirit let you move forward in victory. That's the life that we have to live. And so he goes on here. We're out of time, actually more than out of time. But he goes on here and he makes the point. He says, he says do you not know that all of us who were baptized, immersed into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, through immersion, through faith, not through baptism. And he says, water baptism, I should say, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, he, we too may have a new life. The new life is to live by the power of the Spirit, to say no to myself, because saying yes to the, to the sinful things, it'll destroy my soul. I'll become a shadow of what I could be. My pride, my rage, my lust, all those things, when I'm rude to people, I just like to use that one because we're all rude to people sometimes. And I think we dismiss it. We say things like, well, I was hungry. Oh, well, in that case, I mean, pff, might as well shoot them. I mean, right? We always have these excuses of why we can do what we do. No, we were rude to someone because we esteemed ourselves as better than them and that we have the right to treat them poorly. And that's disgusting. So let's just be, let's, we can worry about the, the drinkers and the fornicators some other day. For now, let's just look at the fact that if we're rude to people, we think we're incredible. And we think they're not. And that's just, it's, it's antichrist, honestly. So we have the right and the ability and the power to say no to being rude. The right, the ability, and the power to, to listening to people, understand them, care about them. That's what we have. So why is the resurrection important? It brought us all that. It brought us the power to do that. It released the power of the Holy Spirit. And it gave us a new life to live. And there's so much more to be said. Um, and last service I just went too long because I forgot. This service I just rode on through it. So, <laughs> but I do care about you guys, just not how long you sit there. Um, <laughs> we have the communion. And uh, I get it. It's Easter if you got to roll. Um, it's actually not Easter. I hate to be a jerk. Easter is just an English translation of the goddess Ishtar. I'm not. I'm serious. And the bunnies and the eggs and all that. So it's it's Resurrection Day, because we're really not into Ishtar. I don't think any of us are trying to you know get down with that. Um, but uh, it's Resurrection Day, and we have an opportunity to remember Christ until He comes. And if you if you got to go, you know, we've got the family coming. I get it. But if you'd like to join us, we'll have a few songs and and just worship the Lord together. Also, lastly, when you take the communion, please kind of do a circle this way, because otherwise you get this weird, like, flow issue. And then we get fights on Easter. And I'm just kidding. <laughs> My communion! All right. Father, thank you for your great grace and great kindness. And Lord, thank you for the blood of Jesus that secured everything for us. And Lord, I just pray, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, that they would cry out to you now. Lord, that they would humble themselves and make a decision to receive you. And Lord, I pray for the people that are hurting, that are distressed, 
that are doing things and don't know why they're doing them. Lord, that you would speak to their hearts, you would give them hope, and that your goodness would lead them to repentance, and that we all, every one of us, would be, have a penitent and a humble heart before you. We pray that you'd be exalted in this place, and Lord, that you would continue to work uh, among us as a, a corporate body and as individuals. And Lord, we give you praise. We thank you that someday you're coming back, and we shall either meet you in the air, or we'll be part of the, the, the throng coming with you. And we look forward to that day. Lord, may you bless uh, our days today. May you be with us uh, in, in your presence, your spiritual presence. And may we have a great time with family or just at home or whatever it is we're doing uh, in, in your fellowship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.